Hey everybody, quick note before we get started, uh, this episode is probably a bit noisier than normal. Um, my cat wanted to weigh in and my one-year-old was still awake. He's hard to keep quiet. I did my best to edit out their interruptions, but bear with me here. And with that, on with the show. It did not appear to be a physical disease that his attendants could recognize but rather a mental breakdown that robbed him of the awareness of his surroundings and of the power over his limbs. The king fell into an inertia, a torpor, from which he could not be roused. At first, his household tried to keep the matter as quiet as possible in the hope that the fit, or whatever it was, would soon pass, and Henry would return to his normal self. But it quickly became evident that it would not pass so easily and could not be kept a secret for any length of time. Uh, that is an excerpt from an unpublished biography of Henry VI. One of Shakespeare's earliest and arguably worst plays are Henry VI, Part 1, 2, and 3. It's essentially about the start of the Wars of the Roses, ending with Henry VI being deposed. As such, I would not qualify Henry as the star of his own play. This is actually an excellent reflection of his life. He was a king from infancy and lacked the strong will necessary to be a medieval ruler. So, he was dominated by other nobles and even his own wife. By some accounts, he was feeble-minded. By others, extremely pious. One thing the historians can agree on, however, is that he had some sort of mental breakdown. He went into what we would now call a catatonia for over a year. It has been the source of much debate for centuries. Today, Dr. Lisa Grogan and I take on the task and discuss what a possible diagnosis could have been. Sit back, enjoy, and let's jump into Henry's head. Hello, welcome to Breaking Bard, a Ripe Good Scholar podcast. I'm your host, Sarah. Today, I'm joined by my friend, Lisa. Hi. She's a doctor of psychology. 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 Yes. I always get them. <laughs> I can't remember which is which. Um, and today, we are going to be taking a look at Henry VI. More the actual historical person than the plays, because the plays are terrible and boring. But Henry VI was a kind of interesting person because he had strange, undiagnosed mental illnesses that we're going to talk about today. Yes, especially because Shakespeare conveniently seemed to ignore that when he wrote his plays. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) Shakespeare pretty much kept Henry VI in the background like the people who were ruling on his behalf. Yes. So, Henry VI is not the star of Henry VI. No. We'll start at the beginning. So, Henry VI was, like, a baby. Yes. Like, newborn baby when he took the throne. Like, I don't think he was even a year old. Yeah, I think nine months old, maybe. Yeah. So, like, he obviously could not rule, like, at all. Right. So, people were appointed to take, to rule on his behalf, which led to a lot of shenanigans down the road. But for Henry, I think what it led to was an inability to function on his own. Yes, I definitely think that he was... It seems that he may have been taken advantage of by people who wanted the opportunity to rule in 
deed, if not in name. Definitely. And I think that um, Henry especially, like, was always kind of frail. Um, Like, when he was crowned, I think when he was eight, when he had his actual, like, coronation in England and in France, um, he was carried Mm. down the aisle, which I found interesting. They didn't say, like, when the stuff I read, um, it didn't say why like it didn't say he had been sick just before i think he was just kind of a frail child he did walk out on his own but he was carried in yeah i don't know well i think the the contrast between himself and his father henry v who's often portrayed as you know the war a warrior king um draws an even more stark contrast to for someone who seems to be a little bit more on the the frail and less warrior side when compared to his father. Exactly. And um, from all accounts, Henry was a very quiet, reserved, peaceful, very pious, like very religious person. Um, so he tended to rather have peaceful resolutions than fighting, which in the 15th century, people were more like, but f- what about war? Right. Like, this is just what we do. Like... <laughs> What's wrong with you that you don't want to go stab a bunch of French people in every spare moment that you have? Exactly. So we kind of have two accounts from historians, two tracks. I mean, different historians, but two tracks. Some that are like, he was very pious and saint-like and wonderful. And another track that's like, he was feeble-minded, like possibly had some mental deficiencies. Yeah. <laughs> um, trying to put this in, like, the best terms possible, because we don't know. Right. And I think, in general, when we're looking at any of these historical figures, I think it's very important to realize that we're looking back on this 600 years later mm-hmm. through the lens of history that was written by the victors and written by people who probably had an agenda and how these people were portrayed. Mm-hmm. And those people were writing without the knowledge and understanding of certain things that we have today. And so that idea of there being two tracks that either he was pious or feeble minded, like depending both could have been true, especially mm-hmm. if different people saw him at different times, he may have presented exactly. that way at different times in his life. Exactly. And I think um, in particular, we need to remember because we are coming out of a lot of the stories about the Lancasters and the Yorks were written by the Tudors. Yes. Who had to legitimize their really, really, really terrible claim to the throne. Yes. It was very tenuous. Yeah. So they had to be like, look, yeah, maybe we weren't totally in line to take the throne. Mm-hmm. But aren't you glad we're here? Look how terrible these people were. Right, exactly. You we know? saved you from all of this. And after decades of civil war, you know, that was preceded by the Hundred Years' War. Right. You know, people were probably like, yeah, cool Fine. <laughs> you do you. You know, and they did lead England into the Renaissance, which is awesome, but at the same time, you're just like, oh. <laughs> yeah, they they wrote the story, so I think yes. that's a good point that we definitely have to keep that in mind. Yes. Um, but in terms of Henry the Sixth, there's been a lot of speculation about what was wrong with him, mostly because there is a documented 18 month period in 1453, starting in 1453, of him in a 
appears to be a catatonic state. Yes. Where he was just non-responsive, didn't talk to anybody, didn't look at anybody, you know, which baffles people because, as you explained to me, like, catatonia usually doesn't last that long. Right, right. So the best theory that we have is that Henry experienced a catatonic episode starting in 1453. And that, there's a couple things that are interesting about that. One, um, when I looked at how old he was at that point, because that was really the first documented mental breakdown that we have. And at that time, Henry was about 32, early 30s, which generally, so a lot of times we think Henry had schizophrenia um, because catatonia is most associated with that. And I'll get a little bit more into like some of the other symptoms that he exhibited, but schizophrenia usually comes on in the late teens to mid twenties. So to experience a first episode of it so late is unusual. However, like what's also unusual is that catatonia usually lasts from a few hours to maybe a week or so. Um, Not usually 18 months. (laughs) Yeah. Not generally that long. However, it can happen more frequently. So like someone Mm -hmm. can come out of it and then go back into it. So my personal theory is that he came out of it and went back into it a couple of times. Yeah. And also figured out that that was a really convenient way for him to not have to rule when he didn't want to. Exactly. And I think that uh, one, you know, point that I, as I was doing my research on this, that really caught my eye was when his son was born. So Mm. Henry had been in this catatonic state for a few months when his son was born. Yeah. And they brought in his son in the hopes that it would kind of wake him up. Mm. And it would be like, look, your son is here. Yay. And then the king miraculously is better, which didn't happen. He didn't respond. He didn't bless the child. Um, Margaret, his wife, came in with the baby. (laughs) As my baby uh, (laughs) chimes in in the background. So Margaret brings in their son. And again, he doesn't respond. Save only that once he looked on the prince and cast down his eyes again without any more. Yeah, and what we discussed a little bit before we started recording was that that may have either been a tick that essentially happened or that he may have, you know, come out of the catatonia, kind of, you know, been out of the catatonia at that point. Um, Because it's also been noted that he did have other episodes of catatonia Mm -hmm. and that they seem to happen at times that were super convenient for him to not have to deal with a bunch of problems. So a lot of times we think that people are either mentally ill or they're faking it. I think it was both. I think that Mm -hmm. the catatonia originally was legitimate, but I think that he and the people around him learned that that was a really convenient thing to have happen Mm -hmm. because I think we cannot discount how helpful it was for the people around Henry to have him as a malleable figurehead that having him alive and saying look the king is ruling when they're in the background pulling the strings that's a lot easier than trying to put someone else on the throne or trying to take the throne for yourself well so what's interesting about that is with this long state of catatonia um, you know, it was a little too early to play the prince card for mm-hmm. Margaret to be like, well, 
my son will be king, so... Yeah, so I will be the protector. Uh, yeah. I will rule in his stead. Exactly. So, Parliament started getting nervous because, like, we've already had one baby king, and that didn't work out great. Right. And <laughs> now we've lost half of France. Yeah, so they started turning toward York. Mm-hmm. To, um, Richard, Duke of York, to kind of take control, be protector of the realm. Somerset kind of takes over... Or, sorry, York, York starts over. taking over... And, like, I, I, he imprisons Somerset. Mm-hmm. So things start going south. Shortly after that, Henry wakes up. Yeah. And is like, oh, look, I can be king again. And then he never has a state, a catatonic state that lasts that long. Right. Ever right. again. Yeah. And so there is a part of you that's like, wonders, not only was he kind of like, oh, yeah, but... Like, he, he came out of it, and they were like, no, sh- it's okay, Henry. Right. Like, you just you you just rest. We got this. And then things started going south, and they were like, just kidding, you need to take control again, because my plans are not working. Yeah, and I, I think that that's absolutely something that can be at play, because it's, especially if you've got a king that is already kind of known to be feeble-minded and known to kind of turn inward and, you know, very almost, you know, studious or bookish or Mm -hmm. reserved that it's not out of character for, you know, the king to be off doing something else Mm -hmm. and for the people around him to, you know, just kind of encourage that more and then bring him back out when they need to. Mm -hmm. Um, because what's also interesting in looking at Henry is, as I said, that the catatonia came on so much later than we'd expect. So as if this were someone in front of me that I was actually trying to diagnose, I would be looking for signs of a psychotic episode prior to that. And I think that there was one. I think there were probably multiple. And especially with how religious he was, we know that people with schizophrenia and psychotic conditions a lot of times can have a religious preoccupation but this is also at a time when that kind of behavior was very rewarded that you know the church and religious uh involvement was very important Mm -hmm. and people believed hands down believed in the power of religious visions and so if you've got someone who's saying that god's talking to them that that's something that's going to be very powerful and people aren't going to question. Yeah, and and I think that's a good point, though, that it it wasn't that unusual because I was listening to a book on the Plantagenets. One of the kings in in any any kind of religious show of piety, like, prayed for, like, three days straight Mm. or something like that. Like, only had a little bit of water. Like, nothing. And, like, on his knees, prayed so that kind of stuff, like, if someone just up and did that today, we'd be like, that's weird. Right. That's right. not healthy. Yeah. You should probably stop. But at the time, they are like, oh, what a devout king. Exactly. Exactly. And I think context is so important when we're looking at things like this, you know, because even now, you know, there are people who have religious experiences that if we take them out of context would be potentially considered symptoms of psychosis. Mm-hmm. Um but back then, absolutely, it was, you know, we're going to hands down accept this. And even more evidence for Henry having schizophrenia is that schizophrenia is something that's very, very heritable. There's a heavy genetic component to it. And when I was doing the research, because that's 
generally when I'm trying to diagnose someone, I want to know, one, are they actually experiencing hallucinations, delusions, the symptoms of schizophrenia? How old were they when they first, when it first started happening? And is there someone else in their family that has it? Because nine times out of 10, we will find at least a first degree relative that Mm -hmm. has it. So a parent or sibling. And there is a lot of evidence that Henry's maternal grandfather, who was King Charles VI of France, had episodes of psychosis. For him, they started in his mid-20s. It's very well documented. Mm -hmm. Um, I literally got on the Wikipedia page and was looking at that blurb, and it, like, ticks straight down (laughs) the list of criteria. So, and there was a documented history in Charles's line, in his mother's line of it. So... We know that Henry had a family history on top of the fact that the royal families of Europe, you know, intermarried for centuries. Well, absolutely. And you see it, you see it crop up, you know, not only prior to Henry, but after Henry, you know, especially, you know, like we were talking about the French court because Charles VI had the delusion that he was made of glass. Yes. So like, and, and the interesting thing with the French court was because they were like, well, God chose this king and this is the one we got. They were just like, okay, everybody treat the king like he's made of glass. Like, that's what God wants, that's what God gets. You saw it come back a few other notable times in different royal families, like in Louis XIV when he built Versailles. Mm -hmm. Everybody was on point at Versailles. And, like, he had a fever one time and, like, his fever dream made up a crazy dance and everybody just learned the dance oh because that's how that goes that's what you do that's what the king wants that's what the king gets you know and 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 i think he was pretty paranoid he was pretty you know and then you know several decades you know several monarchs later in england we have or now around the, a little bit after we have george the third mm-hmm. with uh you know he went mad yeah because this was all throughout the royal families of Europe and I'm sure that if I expanded out to like Italy and Germany and all that I'd find even more Mm -hmm. but you have these notable things so it is interesting to me especially because the the English royals were essentially French right for a very very long time yeah and it's knowing the difference in how France saw their monarch versus how the English saw their monarch Mm -hmm. I think makes a big difference in how it was documented and how it was perceived that the French were more likely and willing to just go ahead and lay out what was happening because if you question that monarch being in place you're questioning God and at that time you are not doing that unless you have a death wish so there are I mean actually what's interesting is that King Charles like his early episodes of psychosis are very well documented and then they get less well documented and basically they just start saying oh he's at it again that crazy Charles right he's just doing it again um but we see you know he was had this really disconnected speech that we see in people with schizophrenia he had he was notably paranoid um apparently at the start of a schizophrenic episode or psychotic episode killed somebody oh um because he thought he was being attacked and like just you like, do like you do just run off and it was like oh you're a traitor let me kill you now um he had periods of catatonia he also there were periods where he was confused that he didn't recognize people around him oh interesting yeah and there were periods where he um i think he thought that he was uh saint george at one point or something to that effect yeah and 
there was a notable time, this is again Charles that we're talking about, that it was documented that he did not bathe or change his clothes. And this is a time when bathing was not as frequent as we do it yeah, now. Yeah, so like he, <laughs> he was stanky. Right, so like it was notable to them at the time. Which is again something that we see that um, a lot of times when people get into really intense periods of mental illness, they stop caring for themselves. Yeah. That he had very disorganized behavior and that's even before we get to this you know glass delusion and he's like mm-hmm. sewing iron rods into his clothes so that he doesn't break you know and the entire french court is like sure well, let's do that that sounds like a great idea yeah but that's also iron rods that's also iron rods in our clothes but as we said the english didn't have as firm of a belief that their monarch had been chosen by god exactly and especially at this period because Rich Henry the sixth grandfather had deposed a king. Yes. Richard the second was deposed by Henry the fourth. We had Henry the fifth. He was like, oh, go look at France instead of the fact that my family I'm stole the throne. <laughs> you know, and then we have Henry the sixth who just doesn't even know what he's doing for many reasons. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then we get into the Wars of the Roses. But, you know, the like you said, the English weren't as gone ho about like you know the absolute monarchy right that you know and in fact that's essentially what took down Richard II is mm-hmm. that he did believe yes. that he was an absolute monarch um whereas even at this time there was parliament there there were people the king was accountable to right and there had been like you said there had been monarchs that had been deposed in the past there had been challengers there had been insurrections um even during edward's reign or not edward henry's reign you know even before we get to edward the fourth and you know the york line and that kind of thing so also this is you know even if we go back further than that william the conqueror started this line his name is william the conqueror clearly he conquered whoever the hell was here before him yeah so yeah he just booped on over from France. right just like popped on over and so the english definitely have a little bit more of an attitude that if a monarch is unfit to rule that there is a possibility that someone else could take that throne that there's another yeah. claimant to the throne that they could yeah. challenge them and so you had that you had that as an incentive to not be like oh look how crazy henry is exactly you know but also on top of that because there were essentially people ruling on Henry's yes. behalf his whole life yes um you know and for a, the problematic chunk was mostly Margaret mm-hmm. and her favorites although they were all problematic frankly none yeah. of them were good at it right now but um you know it was probably like we said earlier useful for them to yes. also be like I mean, yeah, okay, he's having this weird episode. Because you can't, like, hide the king for 18 months. Exactly. But, you know, it was more convenient just to be like, oh, he's just not feeling great. He's fine, though. Like, yeah. we got this, guys. Right, right. You know, and then then it was to just be like, what's Crazy Henry going to do today? Like, the French did, because that's apparently yeah. how they rolled. Yeah, absolutely. And so I do think that, yeah, there was a lot more motivation within the English court, like you said, to mm-hmm. to cover this up, coupled with the fact that 
there wasn't a lot of understanding and especially where it seems at least from the documentation that we do have that Henry's schizophrenia or mental illness probably took more of a religious piety kind of you know tone to it and so it may not have been quite as flamboyant you know he wasn't running around telling everyone he was made of glass <laughs> yeah he wasn't having people so rods and nose clothes you know exactly but so it was a little bit more subtle <laughs> however I did particularly enjoy it. And, and for a lot of my research, I read Peter Aykroyd's book, Foundation, the History of England, from its earliest beginnings to the Tudors. Uh, he talks about some of the stuff they did to help, oh, yes. to help sweet Henry. Um, I'm just going to read an excerpt real quick. Five doctors had been appointed to watch over the ailing king. It was believed that the dung of doves applied to the soles of the feet induced healing sleep. Milk was very good for melancholy, but the eating of hazelnuts discomforted the brain. Green ginger, on the other hand, quickened the memory. And he ends the, you know, kind of segment by saying, awareness returned to Henry slowly and by degrees. And some of what we are talking about is that that, that tracks with... Yeah, that tracks with catatonia. That tracks with schizophrenia. So, um... Schizophrenia is essentially a collection of psychotic episodes. It means that, you know, they they happen frequently, not frequently necessarily, but over time. And part of a psychotic episode is we'll have like a ramping up and then the active psychosis and then kind of a cooling off period, essentially. And so during that ramping up and that cooling off, what will happen is we usually see more of kind of disorganized speech or being confused. Um people may not have a lot of emotion like they'll be you know up and walking around and doing their thing but just not a lot of emotion they may not feel a lot of emotion they may not show a lot of emotion and especially those subtle symptoms are even now as much as we know hard to pick up on sometimes um and especially back then even less so you know if you've got someone who's just maybe not showing as much emotion that's really not gonna you know tick a radar when you're losing half your properties in France and oh by the way York's trying to burn the place down and stick himself on the throne like (laughs) we're not super caring that like (laughs) Henry isn't smiling as much as he should be (laughs) you know so um that would be great (laughs) because I'm like picturing the historical records like this crazy (laughs) battle happened but you know Henry just didn't seem himself he just didn't yeah it just seemed a little bit off um (laughs) So there is definitely that, you know, if he's coming out of it kind of slowly and by degrees, that sounds like the residual phase or that cooling mm-hmm. off as someone's coming out of, you know, regaining clarity. So a couple of questions I have. Mm-hmm. With the catatonic states, a lot of times they did follow periods of stress, mm-hmm. like battles, upright, like lots was going on. Right. Is that like, would that be something that would contribute yes potentially to the catalog state that they're just like okay yeah absolutely and so with any mental illness there's generally a genetic predisposition and something that triggers it and so even though we know more about what schizophrenia looks like in the brain and that kind of thing than we do about let's say like anxiety or depression anyone who has anxiety or depression can absolutely tell you that it gets worse when you're under stress even if your stress has absolutely nothing to do with what normally kind of triggers your anxiety just big transitions in life can bring it on even if it's a good transition 
that it can, you know, make the symptoms worse. And so absolutely these, you know, really big stressors would be a prime time for the symptoms to ramp up on their own because your emotional and mental and internal and coping resources are not as plentiful to kind of stave this off. And so a tired brain is going to be a sick brain essentially. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like we talked about before we started recording, there was, uh, there, there were documented cases of, um, him going into catastonic stage, just not nearly for as long. Right. But like one of them, like there was a big battle happening and he was just like chilling under a tree. Yeah. And yeah, I forget. He either got captured back or captured. Yeah. And At I that think... moment, they were just like, oh, hey, King. Yeah. That's... And so there is, there is, there's definitely evidence. There's at least one time of saying that he was um, laughing and singing during a battle. And so this like really disorganized behavior that doesn't make any sense. Um, we can see, you know, people who have like... an emotional reaction that makes no sense Mm -hmm. to the circumstance and that that is something that does happen in schizophrenia um and interestingly even though we haven't been talking about the play as much um because he kind of glosses over the mental illness um that so I watched Hollow Crown as my Mm -hmm. research um or part of my research for this and in that towards the end there is a part where Henry, you know, kind of chucks his crown, takes off his robes, and is shown mostly naked, like crap walking through a field. I forgot. <laughs> um, <coughs> that's pretty classic of, you know, a disorganized behavior, shall we say. Yeah. So. What? That's not a normal <laughs> battle tactic? That's not not a normal battle tactic at least not to the english practice at that time oh my god i'm pretty sure the celts got naked and painted themselves blue but i don't think the english did that quite as much (laughs) um so you know there is also these other you know kind of glimpses of other symptoms of schizophrenia sprinkled throughout the accounts of henry well and i think that's why really like like in the play and in history there's not that much about henry Right. Like, we know what was happening, mm-hmm. but there's not like, and Henry felt this way. Like, there was some discussion on his personality and what he was like, but not a lot. And I think that was, you know, intentional. Yeah. Either while it was happening or after, like, someone intentionally Absolutely. which is why, and, and Shakespeare also had very little interest in, especially with Henry VI, mm-hmm. following what actually happened. Yeah. Well, and I think that part of it, so yes, I think some of it was intentional that it was definitely like intentionally covering up how bad things really were with him. Mm-hmm. Also looking at, you know, who we know history from and what mm-hmm. records were kept and what records weren't after the fact. Um, plus like in peacetime, Henry may have been super interesting, but this is a time of huge unrest. He inherited the Hundred Years War, and then he's losing territories in France, and Joan of Arc is happening, and then we've got this thing with York happening. It's kicking off the, you know, the Cousins War that later became known as the War of the Roses, and so with all of these other way more super interesting things happening, yeah. you know, the king thinking that he's like the messenger of God or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever is just so boring. Yeah. <laughs> Comparatively. Yeah. The stories are like, eh, yeah. who doesn't? Right. 
Um, one last question I had. Mm-hmm. Where we talked about with kind of the the 18-month catatonia, he likely kind of came in and out of it. Yeah. Like, even though catatonic states can kind of happen, and then, like, you come out and go back mm-hmm. in and come out. I assume there would have been some sort of, like, decent break between the catatonic state. I would it assume. wasn't, like, <laughs> a week later, he was like, Anna Beck, you know? Right. Like, and to be honest, I don't know a lot about the timeline of catatonia. Mm-hmm. Um, even as a symptom of schizophrenia, it's it's relatively rare. Mm-hmm. And not that I've been at this forever, you know, by mm-hmm. any means, but I was thinking about it. You know, I've been working in this field in some capacity or another for about a decade. Mm-hmm. And I have done a lot of work in inpatient hospital, you know, psych hospital, psych units mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So for the most part, I've seen at least a sprinkling of most things that are out yeah. there. And I've not seen catatonia. It's it's rare. Is that... Could that have something to do with the treatment we have now? Like Absolutely. Like that if... Patients, you know, if schizophrenic patients you're seeing today, if we... If they were alive in the 15th century, they mm-hmm. might have gone into a catatonic state. Yeah. Because... Like, yeah, absolutely. And treatment. that's... That is, that's definitely a good point that, you know, we've only had antipsychotic meds for the last 50 years or so, you know, so we're talking about someone 600 years ago. So yes, we are, we're, we have a lot more treatments available. We also are a lot better at recognizing it. So it's very possible that catatonia is something that happens further down the line with untreated mental illness and untreated schizophrenia and we're not seeing it as much because we're recognizing the symptoms earlier and we're getting better at treating schizophrenia so people don't get to this state mm-hmm. um, but another point that you'd made before we start recording is that at some point in this 18 month period he had to eat yeah. you know that so obviously something else was happening that he didn't starve to death during this time mm-hmm. you know this wasn't like you know, they, they didn't have like feeding tubes. They could shove down his nose and, you know, tube feed him for 18 months. Yeah. So something was happening, whether it was, you know, soup was being poured down his throat or he was coming out of it and secretly eating or, you know, something yeah. was happening that he was eating. Some servant was sneaking him cakes. Like, <laughs> yeah. So it's, it is. And it's, it's hard to say because we also don't have a lot of documentation of, other people, you know, lay people who may have had, mm-hmm. you know, experienced catatonia, especially because, quite frankly, they probably died. <laughs> yeah. You know, they probably fell into a stupor and died. Yeah. And so there's not as much that's known about it. Um, but my guess would be that even if we're talking about it happening more frequently, we're probably not talking about like he popped out of it for an hour and then went back into yeah. it. Yeah. You know? that's a super convenient way to get out of being king being king for a while you know in a time that you know you had a lot of pressure on you that Mm -hmm. particularly when we're talking about henry i mean that was a really chaotic period Mm -hmm. of history absolutely and this is a king that didn't wasn't super interested in being king and ruling to begin with. yeah well because i think you know he just from the minute he was born had other people telling him what to do right right you know like he Frankly, it's a miracle he ever said, like, okay, I'm ready to rule on my own now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That he, you know, ever really stood up and, you know, tried to put his foot down. Or that even, honestly, that he went into battle. I mean, I know that's that's what was expected, Mm -hmm. but 
I think, you know, the it's fact still that surprising. it's still surprising that he did that, even if he was, you know, sitting under a tree and laughing and singing while he was doing it. Oh, Henry. They at least got him into the armor. We yeah, okay. Baby steps. <laughs> we got him to the field. He's naked. <laughs> shh, shh, it's fine. Shh. It's fine. He's there. <laughs> Take what you can get. All right. Well, thank you for talking about yeah, Henry the Sixth Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And um, we will have Lisa back again in a little in a few episodes to talk about other Shakespeare characters. Yes. And we'll play doctor with them. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Breaking Bard, a ripe good scholar podcast. If you would like to read up on Henry the Sixth, please check out my blog at ripegoodscholar.com. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at ripegoodscholar, and I am always up for discussing all things Shakespeare related. If you enjoyed this episode or don't want to miss any new ones, hit subscribe and consider leaving a five-star review or sharing with your friends. That's all for now. We'll see you next time. And remember, our court shall be a little academic, still and contemplative in living art. <laughs>